0: Dot this is our sixth Econofact kind of Chats episode that features a panel of distinguished economic journalists, Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times, Scott Horsley of NPR, Greg Gipp of the Wall Street Journal, and joining us for the first time, Megan Green, a columnist for the Financial Times and also the global chief economist at Kroll. We last spoke in May 2022. Since then, inflation has persisted. The Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates, as have other central banks. The dollar has strengthened. We averted a railway strike a few weeks ago that threatened to disrupt supply chains. The Inflation Reduction Act was passed into law. The longest reigning monarch in British history has died, And Britain went through a mini short crisis when new fiscal plans were announced but then reversed. Benjamin, Scott, Greg, and Megan, I'm very interested in hearing your take on most of these issues. Maybe not the Queen's passing as much, but these other economic issues. And thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us. Good to be
2: here.
0: Inflation remains the dominant economic issue in the United States. But information about inflation can be confusing. There's a difference, for example, between core inflation and headline inflation. And the inflation rate looks different if we consider how prices have changed over the past year as compared to how they've changed over the past month at an annual rate. How do we make sense of these different indicators? And are they telling us divergent stories? Greg? Greg?
2: Well, you're right. There's almost as many inflation indicators as there are economists and there are a lot of economists. So you can basically come up with the inflation rate you want. But the one that most people are familiar with is what we call the total consumer price index, which tells us inflation in the last 12 months was around 8%. But we also know a lot of that was because of rising food and energy prices. And we have seen indication that uh, on average, both have started to like move down. So to try and get a better sense of underlying inflation trends, like what will the inflation rate be when all these other sort of cross currents wash out? You can look at the core rate, which excludes food and energy. And the Federal Reserve actually looks at a different index altogether called the Index of Personal Consumption. Uh, and if you look at that index, it kind of tells the same story whether you look at it at a three-month, six-month, or 12-month basis. Inflation is running in the 4 to 5% area. So I think that's kind of what the bottom line is, is that once all the supply chain disruptions and the energy stuff has basically washed out, we're looking at a rate of around 4% not nearly as bad as 8%, but roughly double the Federal Reserve's 2% target. And that's why the Fed is still committed to raising interest rates to try and get that number down.
3: Scott? We, we did get a little break uh, in July and August with falling gasoline prices, which which kind of helped to pull down the headline number on inflation. And we know that gas prices also have sort of an outsized psychological effect on the way people feel about inflation. So the Fed pays attention to those those inflation expectations as well. Unfortunately, this past week we had uh, OPEC and its partners, namely Russia, uh, announcing a big production cut in crude oil, which could send uh, gas prices higher in the months to come. So that, that and we were already seeing uh, retail gas prices uh, rising in, in the latter half of September because of uh, refinery outages on the West Coast and, and in Ohio. So that, that temporary reprieve we were getting from the really high gas prices of the spring Uh, could, could at least partially reverse. And that's, that's not going to help things either.
0: Megan.
1: Yeah. um, I would just say that we economists like to look at core inflation because it strips out the really volatile energy and food prices. But, um, But actually, energy and food is something most people consume and and can't not consume. And so we kind of conveniently remove them from the equation. But that's what people are really paying attention to. I don't even own a car. And I know what gas prices are. Um, I think people are highly attuned to that. Um, And also inflation is just a deeply personal experience. We come up with this basket um, and, and provide weights to figure out what inflation is. But your experience with inflation depends on what, what you actually buy. And so if you're spending a lot on healthcare, then healthcare inflation matters a lot to you. If you own a home, then, you know, that might matter a lot to you. So whatever the headline figure says, I think people's experience with inflation is very different.
0: Megan, in fact, you had a recent column in the FT about that. And you talked about food insecurity. And the way that is affecting people.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think um, for all the attention that we've paid to rising energy costs, there's been relatively less attention paid to rising food prices. Um, And I I think that a food insecurity crisis, which seems to be abating a bit as food price inflation is coming down globally, um, but it has severe uh, political and social effects particularly across emerging markets, those countries that are heavily reliant on imports for food. We've already seen how it plays out in Sri Lanka, for example. Um, A food insecurity crisis arguably kicked off the Arab Spring a number of years ago. Um, And and in both cases, in both uh, the energy crisis and the food crisis, uh, there was already a crisis before Russia invaded Ukraine. There were underlying problems that were exacerbated by the war. Um, And I think that you know, globally, in policy terms, we're trying to do a lot to to pivot on energy, there's relatively less being done to address the underlying fundamental drivers of the food insecurity crisis. And so I think that's going to be a problem that's going to be uh, impacting a lot of people globally.
0: And part of what's happening in emerging market and developing countries is that the price of commodities is linked to the dollar. And so the strength of the dollar Has been raising food prices in these countries as well. One of the issues with inflation is what do people expect? Because we know from our experience in the 1970s that high inflation expectations can actually lead to a dynamic that itself leads to high inflation. And it does seem that inflation expectations are linked to gas prices. And Scott, as you mentioned, gas prices had been falling, but now with this new shortfall or cut by OPEC plus, gas prices might be rising again. What do you think the evidence is on what people expect inflation to be? And does that portend a more difficult or a less challenging effort by the Federal Reserve to bring down inflation? Binyamin?
4: Yeah, you know, in, inflation expectations are important because people's expectations inform their behavior, their demands for wage increases, the amounts that they're willing to pay for goods and services, their planning for the future uh, at both the individual and the corporate level are all influenced by basically our expectations about where we think inflation is going to be over time. And and the good news from the perspective of the Fed is that uh, inflation expectations in the United States have remained remarkably constant and remarkably low, even in the face of this period of inflationary pressure, people on the whole are still uh, planning for a future in which inflation gets back down uh, to something close to where it's been historically, around that 2% number that's the Fed's target. And and that's really interesting because it suggests, uh, in part, that people have confidence that the Fed means it when it says that it will tighten the screws on the economy until inflation does get back down there. In part it may just be the case that this hasn't been going on long enough to really reshape expectations in the 1970s when inflation expectations became a really important driver in the persistence of high inflation it took about a decade to really do that work or at least it took you know a significant number of years before people really started uh behaving like high inflation was here to stay uh, and that created a problem that that required a much more forceful response from the fed but in this case we're still you know somewhere in the two-year range for this surge in inflation and uh, at least to this point uh, it has not reshaped long-term expectations
2: Megan
1: yeah so I, I agree on the importance of inflation expectations I would just highlight how difficult they are to measure um, we have you know market-based measurements of inflation expectations but of course the markets often don't get things right um, they're consumer based measurements for inflation expectations, but people don't get things right either. In fact, there was recently a survey that came out asking people what would happen to inflation when the Fed hikes rates. Uh, And the majority of people actually thought um, that inflation would go up. So, you know, there's a lack of understanding generally about how monetary policy works, where inflation even is. Um, And so they're important, but they're really difficult to measure.
0: So that idea when you have higher rates, you have higher inflation, That's what um, President Erdogan of Turkey claims is the case, and that's why he's been trying to say that cutting interest rates will lead to lower inflation, something that almost nobody agrees with. So the Fed is raising interest rates, and the hope is that there can be, in fact, what is called a soft landing rather than a sharp, difficult recession. Greg, does the recent evidence you think show that there is going to be a soft landing?
2: Let's first of all define what we mean by a soft landing. So a recession is typically when the economy actually contracts and the unemployment rises materially. A soft landing is when economic growth slows, unemployment is roughly stable or goes up a little bit, but the economy doesn't actually contract. And yet it's still slow enough for inflation to uh, ease. Typically in the past, soft landings have occurred when the Fed starts to raise interest rates to prevent inflation from going higher. But it's a situation where they're not actually committed to trying to get the inflation rate lower than it already is that's different today it's inflation right now is too high for the fed it's you know depending on how you measure it four percent eight percent and the fed wants it down to two percent and every single time in the past when the fed set out to try and push the inf- inflation rate lower it's always ended in a recession so based on that historical pattern alone the odds of a soft landing do not look very good right now But you might want to make a few special points about why this time is different. First of all, as Binyal was saying a few minutes ago, if people's expectations of inflation are still really, really low, that suggests that they don't need a lot of convincing to adjust their wage and price behavior so that low inflation actually comes about relatively painlessly. Another reason to be optimistic is that the inflation this time around seems to be heavily caused by disruptions to supply chains, uh, even to the labor market, people who left the labor market because they were afraid of COVID, or they changed where they live, or they changed their type of job. As a result, we see an extremely high level of vacancies of employers unable to fill jobs. It would be interesting if you had a softening in the labor market that showed up as employers simply not filling vacancies as opposed to laying people off. And indeed, some recent data is consistent with that story. In August, we saw a fairly significant decline in vacancies. And yet, the employment report for September showed a nice increase in employment. It also showed a slowing in wage growth, which is exactly the kind of thing that the Federal Reserve wants to see. So you might say the data of the last month or two is consistent with a soft landing. I would add a word of caution though, which is that every hard landing starts out by looking like a soft landing. And the fact of the matter is we have a lot of Fed tightening in recent months that has yet to show itself on the economy. So I would not uh, pop the champagne just yet.
0: Okay, we'll hold off on the champagne. Benjamin?
4: I guess I'd just make uh, two two points in addition to what Greg just said. The first is that one interesting difference between the current moment and some of the recent uh, Fed induced recessions like Volcker's decision to crash the economy in the late 1970s or Greenspan in the early 1990s, is that in those instances, the Fed really set out uh, quite explicitly and intentionally to crash the economy for the purpose of bringing inflation back under control. They said that they recognized that they needed to impose significant pain in order to reshape inflation expectations. uh, And we're hearing the Fed talk differently this time. Now, I don't know whether that means we'll get a different ending to the story, but Fed officials have been Uh, much more cautious in talking about what they want to accomplish. Uh, They have suggested that they see a different balance than their predecessors did between the imperative of bringing down inflation and the danger of driving up unemployment. We've heard people like Mary Daly, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, talk about the importance of not moving from the pain of inflation directly to the pain of unemployment and punishing lower-income families twice. Now, whether they're able to thread that needle, whether that actually delivers a soft landing, I think is a very open question. But it is a difference in mentality uh, among the people who are trying to pull off that landing. And and then the other thing I'd mention is that it has been a surprisingly long time since the Fed did something like this. Uh, Our recent recessions have had different causes. The financial crisis was not a monetary policy induced recession uh and and the economy has changed a lot since then and and the way that monetary policy filters out through the economy and the structure of the economy uh there there is some interesting research suggesting that that the impact of interest rates on economic activity is less direct uh and less powerful than it was uh in say the volcker era uh and and I guess I think there too we don't we don't know how exactly that's gonna play out so Uh, I have questions about, I I think anybody would be right to be skeptical about the likelihood of a soft landing, but, you know, things are different this time in some important ways.
3: Scott? It's also important just to keep in mind the the starting point here. We're starting from a a point of very, very low unemployment. As of last Friday, it was three and a half percent, matching a half century low. So even if we were to see an uptick in unemployment, painful as that might be, you could have a you could have a modest rise in unemployment and still be you know at the very low end of of uh, uh, unemployment by historical measures. So we've got a lot of, of runway here to try to to try to engineer at least a soft ish landing. Fed officials have said you know if they if they could manage to keep the unemployment rate say under five percent they would count that as a win even if the, even though that might not qualify as a, a true soft landing.
0: So shifting a little bit from monetary policy to fiscal policy and from the United States to the United Kingdom, a couple weeks ago, we had this very dramatic event in the United Kingdom where Liz Truss and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, released what they called a mini-budget, which led to a near crisis in the United Kingdom. It was revealed recently that the Bank of England had to step in to prevent a meltdown of financial markets and we saw the pound dip to almost parity with the dollar. What does this tell us, if anything, about fiscal policy more broadly, or perhaps about fiscal policy in the United States where we're reaching uh, record levels of national debt? Greg, your thoughts on this?
2: So here's my take on what we have learned from the UK fiscal debacle. If you go back to pre-pandemic times, we were in a world where supply always seemed to be ample and demand was always constrained, investment was too low. In that world, inflation and interest rates were always low. Indeed, they were arguably too low. And so in that environment, central banks kept interest rates low and they almost welcomed deficit spending because deficits helped counteract excessively weak demand and low inflation, low interest rates. That's not the world we're in any longer. We're in a world now of constrained supply, whether it's the supply of energy or the supply of labor and of fairly strong uh, demand bumping up against that supply. And that manifests itself as persistent inflation problems, not just in the United States, but almost every country. And central banks understand that we're in a real, a new world, which is why they're moving to raise interest rates as quickly as they are. But it doesn't look like elected leaders and uh, budget uh, makers have realized that we're in a new world. And in most countries, not just the UK, they still continue to borrow as if there are no limits on what they can borrow. And I think that lesson from the UK uh, situation is that's just not true. Now we know that part of the sell-off in British markets was because of derivative positions that pension funds had entered into, which then amplified the sell-off as they were forced out of those positions. But that is not the only market where a lot of people have been assuming that long rates will last forever. So I would expect those dynamics to recreate themselves elsewhere. And the Americans really should not be looking smugly at the British as if that can't happen to them, because it can. And in fact, Joe Biden, for all his rhetoric about being for lower inflation, has borrowed, you know, I think about $5 trillion since he became president uh, through things like the Stimulus Act, through things like the Infrastructure Law, through executive actions, which expanded food stamps. And now he wants to forgive anywhere from half a trillion to a trillion dollars of student debt. Uh, It is not that different from exactly how much Prime Minister Liz Truss intends to borrow in the UK. So it looks to me like you look around the world, you still have um, government leaders who do not yet realize that we're in a different world when it comes to deficits.
4: And you mean? So I I agree with Greg's analysis. I guess I'm relatively less concerned about America's fiscal situation. I I don't think we're comparable with Britain in in some important respects. But I I do think that uh, fiscal policymakers are still very much in an old mindset. And I will hazard the prediction that we are going to see a couple of countries have much more painful experiences than Britain just did uh, before that mindset shifts. There are going to have to be some examples made before people learn the lesson.
0: And you mean, picking up on what Greg mentioned about supply constraints, you had a recent editorial in the New York Times about what's happening with housing in California. Now, we know that there are real difficulties with uh, the supply of housing, and then this spills over to other issues like labor markets, because it becomes difficult for people to move from one place to another. Can you talk a little bit about what you raised in that article and what's happening in California,
4: Yeah, you know, if you sort of take a big picture look at inflation dynamics in the United States, one of the interesting things that's happened in recent decades is that even even before this current period of intense inflationary pressure brought on by uh, the pandemic and and its aftershocks, we had this long-term trend in which we have been constraining the supply or failing to adequately supply uh, some of the things that people need and want and, and spend the most money on. And so we've seen over time the cost of healthcare and the cost of education, and most of all, the cost of housing, going up, up and away uh, as a share of household expenses relative to other goods and services. These are hugely undersupplied things uh, in our society. Uh, and and housing is uh, really, you know, perhaps to my mind, the most outrageous example. What you have is a, a situation in which We've uh, inverted the long standing pattern. It used to be the case that the most prosperous areas produced the most housing because the most people wanted to go and live there. That is the story of the growth of New York uh, in the in the 19th and 20th centuries. And what we now have is a situation in which the most prosperous places produce the least housing and make it the hardest to live there And California is the outstanding example of this. It's a place uh, where there are lots of good jobs, but nobody can afford, uh, to move there and, and, and live there and prosper there. Uh, the state, uh, produces nothing like the amount of housing that it needs because, uh, it has handed power over to local governments to control, uh, the supply of housing. And those local governments are basically private cubs of individuals who benefit from rising home prices and they fiercely resist any development. Uh, and so California ends up with less housing than it needs uh that column was about uh, a small bit of good news in terms of California's approach but more important than those changes is the uh is the broader pattern which persists uh which is that uh we are under underproducing housing massively underproducing housing
0: so this is an example of nimby right but you mean not in my backyard keep housing constrained keep the value of your house higher
4: yeah that's that's the term people throw around for the mentality of people in many of these communities uh, who, you know, to the extent that they are willing to acknowledge that a problem exists are pretty consistent in suggesting that it should be solved by building housing
3: somewhere else. Scott. Well, and ideally you'd like to have a situation where people can move to the places where their opportunities are greatest. And before the pandemic, we'd seen a pretty sizable slowdown in, in mobility in the U.S. for, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, There was some hope that with the rise of uh, remote work during the pandemic, maybe that there'd be more opportunities for people to to move to to more affordable places. But now we have this sort of perverse situation where you have a lot of folks who are going to be perhaps locked in by the sort of golden handcuffs, folks who who own homes with uh, low mortgage rates now are gonna have a disincentive to, to move elsewhere and, and have to pay a much higher uh, mortgage rate if, if they move. So that, that could really constrain uh, our ability to, to, to take advantage of, of opportunities of mobility.
0: I'd like to turn to another topic for a moment, the Inflation Reduction Act, which wasn't so much really about inflation perhaps, but more about moving the country towards a more green future. Do you think that this could, in fact, have a measurable impact on the carbon footprint of the United States? Greg?
2: Uh, It definitely will. Um, There are calculations that, for example, it gets the US materially closer to its um, Paris uh, commitments to reduce um, emissions. But I would venture to say that's actually not the most significant accomplishment of this law because most of those near-term reductions will simply come through the greater diffusion of technologies that are already relatively mature like wind and solar, um, and to a certain extent, battery storage, technologies that are more or less competitive, cost competitive with fossil fuels. To me, the more exciting part of this law is the uh, stimulus it gives to frontier technologies like hydrogen and uh, carbon capture and storage and uh, direct air capture. These are technologies that are really just at the frontier and they're not really uh, commercially viable yet. But if we see those technologies following the same um, path that solar and wind did, then as they get built out and there is more, the manufacturing base grows, we start to see economies of scale and learning by doing kicking in those costs start to fall. And the reason that that's exciting is that those technologies are essential to really get at really hard to decarbonize sectors like um, uh, cement and steel and and, uh, agriculture.
0: So one of the points that, Greg brings up is that there's a role perhaps for the government in trying to foster innovation at a point where it might not be commercially viable yet, but it's a sort of a jump start for it. And we also see this with chip technology. I recently interviewed a colleague of mine, Chris Miller, who wrote a wonderful new book called Chip Wars, where he talks about the role of government. What do you think the government should be doing for semiconductors and for microchips and for advanced technologies. Is there a role for the government to do this? And initially it was through the Defense Department and then it went through other agencies as well. What do you see as the government's role in advancing these kinds of high technologies outside of green technologies? Benjamin?
4: I think that, you know, it is interesting to look at research and development spending in the United States over the last half century because... <clears throat> the total amount of money that the nation invests in R&D has increased a little bit over that period. But the composition has shifted dramatically. If you go back to the beginning of the period, more than two-thirds of that investment was government spending. Uh, and that's basically flipped now. Uh, and, and investment comes predominantly from the private sector. Uh, and I think that's consequential because uh, we have seen a pattern in which uh, corporations are more interested in investing in late-stage or market-ready technologies and improving existing technologies or finding variations on a theme, uh, and that it is government funding that has long provided the basis for significant innovation uh, for new uh, areas, that there, there are kinds of projects that are unlikely to be uh, funded at the level that will ultimately be optimal for society unless the government provides those resources. So I think that is a legitimate area in which the government has a role to play and probably a larger role than it's playing at present. Where I think things get much more controversial is when we move into the realm of what's often called industrial policy, which is the question of whether the government should be subsidizing in various ways uh, the production of market-ready technologies. Um, There are a growing number of economists and advisors to the Biden administration who strongly favor those kinds of approaches. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of questions about how that works, uh, at what cost, what are the trade-offs, uh, and and that I think is is where the debate gets uh, you know a lot more complicated.
0: Yeah, I think that is going to be a big issue of debate as we move forward,
3: Scott. Yeah, I mean, industrial policy was kind of a dirty word in this country for a long time, and and there was a, a sort of consensus that the the government was not very good at uh allocating resources to to you know successful enterprises maybe at the basic research stage there was a role to play but the when it came down to market-ready technologies there, there wasn't a role we've seen a real turnaround now with this the, the chips act piece of the inflation reduction act the government's putting a lot of money into uh mature technologies to encourage the development of, of computer chips in this country as opposed to in taiwan or overseas um I, I, we'll see how that plays out we'll we'll see if ultimately that's judged to be successful it's not necessarily all driven by economics it's partly driven by you know geopolitics and and some of the tr- uh, supply chain disruptions we saw during the pandemic but uh, whether whether the government uh, is is ultimately a, a good a good uh, venture capitalist we'll, we'll see
4: yeah, if I can just say one more thing about that, you know, the reason that semiconductors are made primarily in Taiwan and in South Korea, at least the advanced ones, is because those governments uh, engaged in industrial policy. They they bought those advantages. They invested heavily in securing uh, their market leading positions. And And I think the two questions. So that's absolutely true. And then the two questions one needs to ask is how good has that been for them? And how bad has it been for us? Like, do we suffer if we're buying our semiconductors from Taiwan? Uh, You know, what does it mean that we rely on trading partners uh, and, and make other things instead? So those are that that's where it gets complicated. But there's no question that the location of semiconductor manufacturing has been determined by government policy.
0: Yeah, Chris Miller's book does a really nice job of explaining that and also explaining how incredibly complicated it is to make these things at one point. I was laughing because you have to have, like, these nano-sized pieces of tin shot with a laser 500,000 times a second in order to produce enough energy. It just seems like magic that it actually works. So it's incredibly advanced technology, and there are only a few places in the world that can actually do this. Greg? Greg?
2: Uh, I would actually you know, go a bit further than Scott did, and I would say that we haven't got any good evidence that governments are any better at picking winners today than they were in those days when nobody thought industrial policy was smart. Uh, we are pouring all this money into semiconductor manufacturing at a time when semiconductor prices and the share prices of <laughs> semiconductor companies are plunging because there is currently actually a glut of the most advanced chips. So why are we doing it anyway? I think it's because, well, we don't buy fighter jets from other countries even when it's cheaper because we think that's dangerous for our national security. We now think of semiconductors as similar to fighter jets. We do not want to end up in a situation where we depend on countries like China for something so important. So in some sense, we willingly subsidize something knowing that it's not actually economically very efficient because there's a larger principle at stake, which is that we need not to be dependent on adversaries for this. In economics, we call these externalities. These are costs that emerge from market transactions that are borne by society. If we ended up in a situation where we depended entirely on stable or adversarial places for these key technologies, that would impose a cost that we may only come to realize at a time when uh, we are at war.
0: Yeah, Chris points out in his book how Russia really failed in developing this. And so the weapon systems, for example, that Ukraine is now using are much more advanced. And we have these smart bombs and things like that. So I want to thank you once again for this really interesting conversation. There's so many things that are going on now from semiconductors to the inflation problems facing the United States and other countries and fiscal problems. In, I really appreciate that you were able to share your insights on this today. Thanks again for joining me.
3: Thank you.
0: This has been Aconifact Chats. To learn more about Aconifact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.aconifact.org. Aconifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.